Let's notice chapter 15, verse 1. And at home, you can feel free to read aloud at home. And here tonight, those who are joining with me this evening with your masks on, go ahead and read the scriptures if you want out loud. If you feel inhibited by it, that's fine. But if you want to join reading it, that's a blessing. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who should not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials, or bowls, full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter to the temple to the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Father, tonight again, we humble ourselves before the very living word of God. I pray that we not be deaf. I pray that we not be blind. I pray that we not be hardened. But of all the messages that we've studied and passages, impress on us the urgency and the criticalness, the darkness of the hour. The sun is setting. And for some, it might be their 11th hour. Lord, is there ever a time we need to be serious about living for God? There's ever a time we need to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It's right now. We pray for America, which now is celebrating 244 years of an independence from a tyrannical nation, from a state religion, censure of speech, the inability of the right to bear arms back in those times. They declared independence from all that. And those men who were the signers of the Declaration, many of which who lost all their possessions because it was worth it all, they passed down to us a heritage a legacy of one republic under God. Republic under God declaring that God is sovereign. God is great. And the flag, which now, Lord, is being blasphemed and shredded and burned, that flag represented honor, the shedding of blood for freedom, Lord, that, na that flag represented a nation of people that though they may have had differing beliefs about God, they understood one thing. They came here for freedom, the freedom of religion. And we realize tonight there is no freedom when we're under sin. But thank God tonight that the blood of Jesus Christ, when a person comes under his blood, they are freed from that, from sin. There's liberation. Tonight, I pray that you'd set people free from sin and tyranny of, Lord, perhaps of bondage to under. And Lord, I pray you set some people free from the bondage of iniquity and the gall of bitterness. In its place, I pray for the liberty that's in Jesus Christ. The Bible says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But tonight, I pray for liberty. I pray for great wisdom and power as I preach tonight, that God, the Word of God, would come alive in every heart and life. Feed our souls once again today. We give you thanks for this service in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
We're in the closing scenes of the Great Tribulation. It just seems like the beginning of the year, it just seems like yesterday I began preaching from the book of Revelation, and already now we're in the 15th chapter and probably six or seven messages away before being done with the series in Revelation. It's been profitable to me. I pray it's been profitable to you. And we're in these closing scenes of the Great Tribulation, and we're going to notice here that in this passage, as we read verses 15, chapter 15 and 16, God's final call to the lost people of the world to get saved. In Revelation, we've seen a series of seven. We've seen seven churches. We've seen seven years of tribulation. We've seen seven sealed trumpets. We've seen seven angel trumpets. And tonight, we're seeing the seven vile or bowl judgments. Notice, if you would, associate with these angel messages, we'll see. Notice with these messengers, notice the fact that time is running out for the people in the tribulation period. It is now going past the three and a half year period of time. And God is announcing here seven bold judgments filled up with the wrath of God. The Bible says in chapter 14, verse 7, the hour of God's judgment is come. The Bible says in, Je- in Revelation 14, 15, the time is come for, for God to reap. And so we see this coming reality. What stands out in my mind is chapter 15, verse 8. Would you notice it? The Bible says, no man was able to enter. No man was able to enter. Have you ever been at the airport and paid attention when, be, when it's boarding time and they call all the different, the different groups, group A, group B, group C, whatever it may be, and then they wait a little bit and they make an announcement like this. They say, this is your final call. The doors will close in one minute. This is your final call. The doors will close in one minute. And I believe as we look at this, this is a reminder to everyone during the tribulation period. God's going to give a final call. Then the doors will be closed. And the Bible says in chapter 15, verse 8, no man will be able to enter in. I don't know about you, but that's a terrible feeling to know that when you want to enter into place and the doors are closed and they will not let anybody in. And so tonight we want to pay attention to this message, in fact, and see what God has to say for us and that our hearts would be warned, but our hearts would also be stirred. Number one, I want you to notice in verses 1 and 7, I want you to see the tribulation wrath. The Bible says again that there were seven angels having the seven last plagues, and in them is filled up the wrath of God. And then in verse 7, and one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. All of chapter 16 is about these seven bold judgments. I call your attention as a prelude to two statements that are made. In verse 1, it tells us that in them is filled up the wrath of God. And in verse 7, full of the wrath of God. I did a little bit of study on that. And the word filled up and full is an interesting word. It is the same word that Jesus cried out when he was on the cross, it is finished. We use the word tetelestai. In the Greek, it's the word teleos, but it's also the word tetelestai. It says that it is filled up, it is full of the wrath of God. And literally, it means this, that these plagues are a finality and these plagues are a fullness. The fullness of all of God's wrath is being pulled out. I want you to understand, being poured out. I want you to understand tonight that when it speaks about the fullness of God's wrath, it means all of God's wrath is being poured out in a great fashion and manner on all of these people. When we look at the word poured out, it has the idea of a, just an emptying out of a container. Everything's poured out. There's nothing being held back. We see these seven plagues. Go with me to chapter 16 and notice beginning with verse 2. We're going to see the explanation of each of these plagues. In chapter 16, verse 1, it says, And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Gore your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. Again, poured out means a gushing out, the distribution of a large proportion. Notice verse 2, the first plague we see. It's a plague of swords. Verse 2 says, And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. The first plague is poured out, as we saw earlier in it last week, it's poured out upon every person who is bowed to the image of the beast, who's worshipped the beast, and has received his number on their head or on their, on their hand. The Bible says that they were afflicted with noisome and grievous sores. Noisome, noisome means evil, troublesome, and destructive. 
Grievous means great perils or perilous swords. In other words, there are these swords that inflict on them. I'm not sure what that means, if it means actual physical swords on their bodies, internal swords like ulcers, but we know one thing. They're in pain. They are grieving. They are, they are, they are afflicted. They're, they're, they, they're, they're in torment day and night. The Bible says God poured out upon them noisome and grievous swords. You see, these people who give in to getting the, the, the mark of the beast and the worship of the beast, these people have no fear of God. And they're filled with these troubling sores upon them because they worship the beast. What a terrible thing to know that people have given their worship, their adoration to the beast and to his image. And God says here in this first plague, this plague of sores, he's going to pour out great, great sores upon them. Then notice plague number two in verse, verses three and verse three. Plague number one is a plague of sores. Notice plague number two is a plague upon the seas. And the Bible says the second angel poured out. He emptied out. He distributed a large proportion. His bowl upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. When we read about this, we read back of, of, of previous plagues that were mentioned, and we think back about the, about the, the Nile River during the, the very first plague that Moses sent out by the, by the command of God, when all the waters of Egypt were turned into blood. The Bible literally tells us this, that the blood became as the blood of a dead man. I mean, literally, it, had the it will have the constituency and the thickness and the components of the blood of a dead man. Now, we're really not sure what it is. I've read different, different people about this, but we know this. All marine life is killed. Every living soul that's in the water will die. There are some who perhaps work on oil rigs. They're going to die from this. There are going to be some that are mariners on the ocean, perhaps are in cargo ships. They're going to die from this. There might even be cruise ships out there. They're going to die from this. Someone has thought maybe this press could be the red tide. You've read about the red tide and know about that. that. That kills off organic life in the water. I'm not sure if it's the red tide, but I know this. The Bible says in verse 3, it's a plague upon the seas, that the entire ocean waters will be turned into the blood of a dead man. Some might believe this could just be the Mediterranean Sea itself. We're not really sure about that, but we don't do know this. Yet every living soul will die in that sea. We see God afflicting once again the plague of blood upon the waters. Then notice plague number three tonight. We see a plague of sores. We see a plague upon the seas. Notice in verses four to seven, we see a plague upon the streams. Now, the seas speak about salt water. It speaks about ocean water. The plague upon the streams is talking about fresh water. It's talking about all the waters upon which we draw our drinking, our drinking sources from. And this is very, very frightening. Notice the third angel, verse 4, poured out his vial or his bowl upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and was and shall be, because thou hast judged us, for they have shed the blood of the saints and of the prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And I heard another out of, out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. Now, you remember we, we read about about there in chapter 7, about the, 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 the souls under the altars and crying out for God's vengeance because of all the martyrs and all the bloodshed that was happening during the tribulation. Well, God is vindicating them right here in verses 4 to 7. When God sends the judgment upon the streams, God is vindicating them. And the angels are crying out, the angel that's in charge of the waters and another angel which was, was, which was supervising over the altar. They're crying out the righteousness of God and God serving justice, if you would, poetic justice upon those who had, who, had, who had caused the saints of God to, to, to suffer. But I noticed something interesting in verse 6. It's not just because of the shedding blood of the saints, but the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Now, I believe that also includes perhaps God's prophets that were serving him, the two witnesses that were serving him. But I think it's going back in time of prophets like Isaiah, who was sawn in half, and other prophets of God who were killed for the sake of the, for the, uh, for the, sake of the gospel. It includes John the Baptist, people like that. But God has turned their streams into water. It's as if God was saying, I'm going to turn your drinking sources into blood because of all the bloodshed that you did. Justice is served. God said, they are worthy because of what God has done. Then notice plague number four. In verses eight and nine, we see plague number four. This is the plague of the scorching sun. Now let's think about it for a minute. We see a plague of sores. We see the plague upon the sea. We see the plague upon the streams. Now we see the plague of the scorching sun. The Bible says in verse, verse eight, and the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun. Now when you think about the ozone layers, the ozone there, whatever's left, is completely diminished. 
He pours it upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. If you talk about a bad sunburn day, it's pretty bad at that moment, amen? I mean, they are roasting. The Bible uses this word scorch. It means literally they're burned. And it says men were scorched with great heat. This is over all of planet Earth. It doesn't matter where people are at. And the Bible says their reaction to that is they blaspheme the name of God. I mean, you can, you can almost imagine the vileness of the words and the voices of people blaspheming God because they're scorched with the sun. These last few days, we've had a lot of sun and a lot of heat. I went out yesterday a little bit at about 4 o'clock to just kind of do a three-mile walk just to kind of get my energy level up a little bit there, and it was pretty hot. I went uphill, downhill, and so forth like that. It was pretty hot. But can you imagine the heat being so intense? Men and women, boys and girls are scorched, and it's so intensely hot. They're blaspheming the name of God. And the Bible says in verse 9, men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God, which has power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. I want you to imagine with me these series of plagues. Everybody that's on earth that has the mark of the beast, that's worship the beast, they've got sores. Compounding that, those sores, the, the ocean seas, I've turned into blood. The stream waters have turned into blood. Their water sources cannot be purified. They cannot, they cannot filter out this out. The constituency of the water has changed. There's no way they're going to be able to buy any kind of water. I mean, whatever bottled water is left is going to be all sold out. It's going to be gone. And basically people, whatever source they have, they're not going to be able to filtrate or do anything there. Their water sources are polluted. And now they're scorched with great intense heat. There's no water in sight. There's no rain in sight. There's nothing happening there. And men now, are they're, they're blaspheming God. But the Bible says here in verse 9, they repented not uh, 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 to give God the glory. Then notice plague number 5. We see the plague of dark shadows. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seed of the beast. And his kingdom was full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues for pain. And blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their swords. And again, repented not of their deeds. This draws an image to us, two images. Image number one is the plague during Moses' time when darkness covered the earth. You do a study about being in darkness over a period of time. A lot of health problems come. Your vision is affected. The pigment of your skin is affected. There's a lot of bad things happen if you stay in darkness for a long period of time. Another image comes to mind. And that is when over Jerusalem, the darkness covered the land at the sixth hour as Jesus, as Jesus hung on the cross. The Bible tells us now on this plague of dark shadows, it tells us that the men and the women the entire kingdom of the beast is filled with darkness. And men and women, they're in such agony because of this protracted period of time of darkness. They literally are chewing off their tongues. Can you imagine that? They nod their tongues for pain. You ever fall asleep, bit your tongue in your sleep? You ever chew your food? And accidentally, you're chewing so quickly, you bit your tongue, your cheek, that's pretty painful. Can you imagine the painfulness and the sores? These people are already suffering from sores because they have worshipped the beast. They're suffering because their skin has been scorched, probably the equivalent of second and maybe even third degree burns, and they're blaspheming God. And now they're in such pain, the Bible says they, they, are, they, they, they nod their tongues for pain. And the Bible says they still have repented not. I mean, there is hardness. I'm amazed at the hardest of people in our generation. But can you imagine the hardness during that time of the afflictions they're receiving and yet still not praising God? Then notice plague number six. There's the plague of controlling spirits. So this is pretty, this is pretty uh, gruesome. In verses 12 to 16, we see something else because now the plague has come on the kingdom of the beast. And now verse 12, and the sixth angel poured out his vial or his bowl upon the great river Euphrates. 
And the water thereof was right of it. You need to go study geographically the length and the breadth of the Euphrates River. The entire river is dried up. Not over a period of time, instantaneously. And it says, the water thereof was dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Now, you don't have to be a rocket science to figure out the kings of the east is Asia. They become confederate together. They hate Israel. They hate God. They form an alliance. China most likely is going to be leading the way. And the drying up of the Euphrates makes a passageway as they march forward with their military armaments to make their way there. As that happens, notice verse 13. John said, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs. And I think about the plague of frogs for just a moment that Moses sent. Three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and of the beast and the false prophet. Now, the dragon is Satan. The beast is energized by Satan. The false prophet is energized by Satan. They're, they're possessed by Satan. And out of them are these three, the Bible describes, unclean spirits. Now notice this. They are the spirit of devils working miracles, miracles which go forth to the kings of the earth and of the whole world. They gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Now the stage is being set. The unclean spirits are going out. They're working in what we call the goat nations who are against Israel, who are against God. I think these nations we read about over in Ezekiel chapter 38. And these, these nations are coming together. Their mind is obsessed with battle and war and going to war with the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're going to gather together there at the land of the area of Armageddon. And right in there, verse 15, we have a pause. In verse 15, notice the Lord Jesus Christ says, Behold, I come as a thief. He says, I'm coming very soon. He's marking it down for anyone who picks up the scriptures during the revelation period of time, the tribulation period of time. He says, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. That's another verse I'll preach on another time. But notice verse 16. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. So these unclean spirits are working. They're working in presidents, prime ministers, kings, you can just imagine. The demonization of spiritual wickedness in high places working in these, these nations. And then now notice we get to plague number seven. Plague number one was the plague of swords. Plague number two was a plague upon the seas. Plague number three is a plague upon the streams. Plague number four is a plague upon the sun. Plague number five, we see the, the, the plague of, of, um, upon the seed of the beast and the, and the dark shadows. Plague number six is the drying up of the Euphrates and then the releasing, if you would, the three, the three demonic spirits that will be working in the nations of the world. Plague number seven is of great shaking and of stones. Look at verse 17. And the seventh angel poured out, again, it's pouring out completely. The entire contents are emptied out. He poured out his vial into the air. And there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. It's completed. The fullness of God's wrath. And we saw in verse 18 a similar verse in Isaiah this morning. There were voices and thunders and lightnings and there was a great earthquake. Now, we saw a great earthquake in one of the previous, previous uh, wrath of God. And that earthquake, there were 7,000 that died in Jerusalem. Notice this one. This earthquake is the mother of all earthquakes. This one shakes the entire world. There were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake. Notice this. Such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. Now, I still remember the Loma Prieta earthquake in 1989. I was sitting at my desk, talking to my wife on the phone. We both felt shaking, but this was a bad one. 
I mean, everything was moving, and it, and it shook from 30 to 45 seconds. It's one thing to have a jolt. It's another thing to feel the shaking at that moment. I, I debated going under the desk or running out of the office. I ran out of the office because I saw the glass moving there. It wasn't until just a few moments later we realized the severity of that earthquake and back which, which is now, which, which is no longer there, but at that time the connector from 880 to the Bay Bridge was a two-layer freeway. It was called the Old Nimitz Freeway. And that whole section had collapsed and people that were on the bottom section that were under there, they, it collapsed on them and all of those people died. There were no survivors. It crushed every one of those people under there. And the image of just the, the uh, segment of the Bay Bridge collapsing and the image uh, still in my mind is very vivid of the Marina District, San Francisco being on fire and the ground crumbling. I mean, just the images of all the things that happened to the earthquake still fresh in my mind. That is nothing compared to what will happen during the tribulation period. Notice this in verse 19. This is speaking about Jerusalem. And the great city was divided into three parts. The earthquake shook to such dimensions that Jerusalem is broken into three sections. And the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Babylon is speaking about spiritual Babylon there. And notice this, verse 20. Every island fled away, and every, the mountains were not found. Listen, islands literally, li, islands literally collapse and go back under the seas. I mean, I don't know about you, but I kind of wonder, is that going to happen to Hawaii? Is that going to happen to some of the islands that were born out of volcanic activity? And then there are mountains that will be flattened by this great earthquake. And the Bible says we, we're dealing with this earthquake and the carnage and the death and the destruction, I mean, you just can imagine the entire Middle East is flattened and broken up by this earthquake. And then, and then in verse 21, as this shaking occurs, there are great hailstones, verse 21, that fall out of the sky. Now these hailstones, the Bible tells us they will weigh 100 pounds. Now the Bible says they were about a talent of weight. That's basically about 100 pounds. 100-pound hailstones, and this is without the momentum. You know this from studying physics, that anything that falls out the sky, it picks up momentum, and the actual momentum makes it heavier than it actually is. Well, you, can you imagine 100-pound hailstones coming out of the sky with the momentum, and the Bible says, men blaspheming God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. I think about Joshua's battle on Gibeon in Joshua chapter 10. And as Joshua and his men made their way at night, they went up to the mountain passageways, and they did battle. God's hand was on them. They had victory, but God sent hailstones so great that men were killed. I imagine perhaps that these were 100-pound hailstones. And the Bible says more died from the hailstones in that battle of Gibeon than they did by the sword. Can you imagine right here? Men are hit by 100-pound hailstones. Can you imagine the damage to buildings, to cars, to crops, all of that? Remember the hailstone plague that God sent upon Egypt and their crops were destroyed? Can you imagine God just afflicting the entire uh, planet Earth with these 100-pound hailstones. They're not going to be restricted to one area. All of the areas of the Earth are going to be afflicted by 100-pound hailstones. I don't know about you, but can you imagine the atmospheric pressure and the change in the atmosphere that's going to bring about 100-pound hailstones? I mean, it's going, to be, it's going to be awesome in terms of what God is going to do there. The angel described it as this. He said, it is done. They're the extreme of these plagues. 100-pound hailstones, scorching of the sun, the seas turned into blood, fresh river, rivers and, and, and stream sources turned into blood. There's extreme. There's excruciation. Men crying out because of sores and pains and blaspheming the name of God and still not repenting. There's exasperation. Through all this, nobody's repenting towards God. God gave his final call when that angel in chapter 14 with the everlasting gospel is preaching the gospel. That is God's final call upon planet earth. Now if you and I knew during this age of grace, if we knew the specific time that Jesus Christ was to come, 
I would take all my staff men, all my preachers here, and I'd commission the men to go out, get out. Let's find a corner. Let's rent a building. Let's rent the Coliseum. Let's get as many people to come near the gospel because we know Jesus is coming. But can you imagine God sends an angel from heaven with the everlasting gospel to give the final warning. But the men on planet earth, whatever billions of people left, six billion, seven billion people left, they will not repent. They are still blaspheming the name of God. What excruciation. The time for repentance is past. God's patience for sinners is past. The door is closing. You better board now before no man can enter in. We see the tribulation wrath. Secondly, go back to chapter 15. We need to go back and remember God gave John an interlude. A pause. Because when you read chapter 16, and you think about the carnage, and how dark that time will be, there's nothing encouraging for the people that lived during that time. And God, before he did that, wanted John to see one more time. He wanted to remind them, about the triumphant redeemed. He wanted to remind him that in spite of all those things, there are going to be some people who will not be martyred, who will be saved, but will not be martyred, and will actually persevere during that remaining three and a half years period of time. And we go back to chapter 15, and he sees again this glimpse into heaven. And as he looks at this glimpse in heaven, he sees this group of people that had gotten victory, the Bible says in verse 2, victory, notice this, over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name. Now that gives me encouragement tonight. Because many of us feel like it's hard. We feel like it's hard to live for Jesus Christ. We feel like it's hard to live with, a, with family members that are not saved and make fun of us and mock the name of God. We feel like it's hard to live for Christ in the school system. We feel like it's hard to live for Christ where we work. And the laws, as they're changing right now, and there's a cascade of laws changing right now, making more hostile to be a, a, a believer in this world. It's a reminder to us that you can still triumph. And there's still victory in Jesus Christ. And you're still on the winning side, amen? And you still can be victorious over these things. And notice God wanted us to remind us of the triumphant redeemed. And notice some things about them tonight as we, we think about this. First of all, notice they're successful. They got victory. I mean, when you think about all the bad things that are going to go on, and they're going to be hunted, they attained Victory at the end of the tribulation period is said they had gotten victory. They're over the top Christians. They shed many tears, but they were victorious. They lived in pain, but they were victorious. They were destitute, but they were victorious. They, 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 they became the scum of the earth and the offscore in the world, but they were victorious. They said no to the beast, no to his image, no to his mark. They persevered through the great tribulation storm. They were successful. I want to encourage brothers and sisters in Christ, some of you are new Christians, you have just told your family members you're saved, you're trying to live for Christ. Some of your family members are making fun of you and questioning your, your, your reasoning for going to church in a COVID-19 world. I want to encourage you tonight, don't give in. Throw, throw in the towel. Don't give up. Don't let the devil take control of your mind and your thoughts. Be victorious. Just as these people were victorious over the beast and over his image and over his mark, you can be victorious as well over Satan. We, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us so. We see the triumphant redeemed. They're successful. But notice something else in verse 2. They're standing. John sees a sea of glass mingled with fire. It's a sea, but it's not water. It's crystallized. It's translucent. It's solid. 
You can see through it. He said it's a sea of glass. Now glass in the Bible is symbolic of the Word of God. The Bible says we've seen a glass darkly. The Bible says as a man beholding his face in a glass. I believe as we look at these people it says they're standing on this sea of glass. They were successful because they were standing on the Word of God. And I want to tell you tonight, this is not a time for less Bible. This is a time for more Bible. This is not a time to be sitting on the Word of God, but to be standing on the promises of God. This is not a time for less preaching. This is a time for more preaching. More fiery preaching, more powerful preaching, more preaching of the Word of God. This is not a time for compromised preaching. This is a time, just like these believers, they stood on the Word of God. And I want to encourage you tonight, having done all, to stand on the Word of God tonight. They're standing on God's Word. Go with me to Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. Would you do that, please? I want to see something very remarkable this evening. Joshua needed something to stand on. He was the successor to Moses. Those were some pretty big sandals to fill, amen? And if I was Joshua, honestly, I would have been content to stay in Moses' shadow. I don't believe Joshua at one time ever, ever coveted in his heart the position of Moses I don't think at any one time that he ever even imagined in his mind that Moses would ever die. I think he was content being the servant to Moses. But the day came. God took Moses home. God spoke to Joshua. He says, now my servant, is, my servant Moses is dead. Now the, now the baton has been passed to you. He needed something to stand on. Would you notice verse 8? Very familiar passage. He said, Joshua, I'm going to paraphrase this. I'm going to give you what to stand on. Joshua, you're going to make it to the promised land. You're going to settle in the promised land. You're going to fight some battles, but along the way, you're going to have to stand on the word of God. And so he tells them three things in verse 8. Did you notice this? Number one, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. Now let me help us tonight. Let me help us tonight. We're, we're believers, just like we saw this morning, that are used to giving lip service to God. And some of us, we have trouble with our mouths. For some of us, we need to speak up more. Some of us, we need to be quiet, amen? And some of us, we speak too much off the top of our head, and we're too opinionated. And some of us, we complain too much. And some of us, we may have a problem with cursing and swearing. And some of us, we have speech problems and word problems. Notice the Bible says this, this book of the law should not depart the mouth. Number one, the word of God, when you stand on it, gives you victory over your mouth. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Victory over our mouth. The Bible says when we get God's word, we're standing on it, it shall not depart out of thy mouth. So notice Ephesians 4, verse 29. You have a mouth problem, a tongue problem, speech problem. I'll tell you the cure for it. You need to memorize verses 29 to 32. You need to commit to memory James chapter 3. Notice he says here, let no, that means none, no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. But that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sakes has forgiven you. But he goes on a little bit further. Go down to chapter 5, verse 4. 
neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting which are not convenient, but rather the giving of faith. Listen, if you're given over to telling bad jokes, you need to stop right now. Neither foolish talking, the Bible says. It gives us victory over our mouths. Go back to Joshua 1.8. Joshua needed something to stand upon. He needed something in which, a platform in which to instruct those people as they walked into the promised land because he heard all the murmuring. He heard all of the complaining. He heard all the stuff he needed because he was not of the same constituency as Moses. He did not possess the meekness of Moses. The Bible says nothing about the meekness of Joshua. I think he had meekness, but nothing to the degree that Moses had. The Word of God gives us victory. Listen to me. It gives us victory over our mouths. Secondly, it gives us victory over our minds. Look what he says here. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt, what does it say? What does it say? Meditate. How do you meditate? With your mind. You know why you don't have victory over depression? You know why you don't have victory over dirty thoughts? You know why you don't have victory over pornography? You know why you don't have victory over anger? You know why you don't have victory over bitterness? You know why you don't have victory over ugly thoughts? I'll tell you why. Because as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. You know what? If you spend time thinking about the word of God, that'll change it. Because he says, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. That's the remedy. You don't need Prozac for your mind. You need the word of God for your mind tonight. Our minds are a mess. Our minds are a battlefield. A critical spirit is because we're not meditating on the Word of God. Notice something else. Joshua needed a platform. He needed something to stand on. God says, stand on my Word. You can have courage. You can be strong. But you need my Word. Now you can be polished, and you can speak, and you can walk, and you can work, and you can witness, but you need God's word. And he says, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. That means we have victory over our mouth. But thou shalt meditate therein day and night. We have victory over our minds. That thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written there. And then notice the last part. For then thou shalt make, what does it say, the next two words? Thy way prosperous. And then thou shalt have good success. It gives us victory in our manner. Blessed is the man that walketh not, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. This group here is standing on God's word. They're standing on a sea of glass. God is acknowledging them for loving his word. I'm telling you tonight, the greatest victory we'll have, greatest trophy we'll see in heaven is a church of people that when they get to heaven, God can commend you for standing on the word of God. Something else, go back to verse 2 of chapter 15. We saw the sea of glass, Revelation 4. Revelation 15.2, we see something unique about this sea of glass that was not seen in Revelation 4. I saw as it were a sea of glass, which you notice this next phrase, mingled with fire. Fire is symbolic of trial and suffering and testing. Daniel 3, I wish I had time for us to read and study it. We have the story of three great Hebrew young men. Hananiah, Mishael, Nazariah. I was preaching for Brother Tim Rasmussen earlier this year. And I think it was a chapel service. I preached like three or four times for him. And I preached a chapel service. And uh, he, has a, he has a great Christian school. They have like, I don't know, 1,400 students in the Christian school. And a Jewish, a Jewish junior high boy came up to me. I didn't know he was Jewish. He said, Pastor Fong. I said, yes. He said, I want to thank you. He said, 
You're the very first person I ever heard preach about the three Hebrew young men. You didn't call them by their Babylonian name, their Chaldean name. You called them by their assigned Hebrew names. He said, I'm Jewish. I identify with their assigned names that were given to them when they were Hebrew. I said, well, I do too because that, those names represent who they were under God. I don't like using their, their Chaldean name because the Chaldean name is, represents a pagan deity. Their, their Hebrew names represents the names of God. Amen. They were cast into a furnace of fire, studied out. They're standing and walking in the fire. Praise God. Amen. Amen. These redeemed, these triumphant redeemed, they're not just standing on the word. They're standing through the fire. And I'm going to tell you, no matter how bad your trial is right now, and my trials, they do not compare to what these brethren will go through during that last three and a half year period of time. They're standing through the fire. They did not bow. They did not bend. They did not burn. They're successful. They're standing. Go back to chapter 15, look at verses 3 and 4. And again, they're singing. Do you sing? Do you have the joy of the Lord in your heart? Do you hum? It's interesting. <clears throat> Every now and then, my wife and I will, will, uh, will watch Evie for Solomon Carice. And uh, I'll take a moment. She takes a nap. And I'll take a moment. I say, hey, you want to go in a car? I'll push you down a car. And I push her down a street. These little, you know, push cars for your little kids. And she's humming and she's singing. And then when I take her back to their home, I, I put her in her car seat. And I hear her singing, and she says, gong, gong, let's sing. And she wants me to sing. And if I don't sing, she, she, she rebukes me. She says, she'll start singing. She says, gong, gong. That means, that means gong, gong, you better sing. Grandpa, you better sing right now. And we're singing O McDonald. I mean, I don't, I, man, I had to learn O McDonald all over again. I don't, I couldn't, Brother Irwin, I couldn't remember O McDonald, man. And then, and then the, the Bumblebee song, and somebody said, man, I had forgotten those songs. I had to learn because she knew those songs. And she could carry a pitch and carry a note. I mean, the little girl likes to sing. Listen, I want to tell you what. There are Christians that need to learn how to sing. Did you notice the song they're singing? Look at verse 3 and 4, and I wish I had time for us to study it out. They're singing two wonderful songs. Brother Vaughn, it's the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now, when you sing the song of Moses, the song of the Lamb, you're not worrying about who wrote the lyrics. You're not worried about it. You know why? Because today we have to worry about who wrote the lyrics and where did it come from and what's his background that. I'm thankful in heaven. We don't have to worry about that junk. Amen. Jesus wrote it. Moses wrote it. That's all that matters. Amen. And I just went back before I came to the pulpit tonight and just read over Exodus 15 again of the song of Moses. Man, my, I got all fired up just thinking about everything they experienced. They captured everything they experienced in their mind. And Moses led the singing. Three lyrics are found in verses 3 and 4. Did you notice that? Lyric number one, first stanza, he's, they're singing, How great thou art! Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. How great thou art! It doesn't get any better than that. Lyric number two, How good thou art! Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Just and true means, God, you're so good to me. God, you're better to me than I deserve. God, you're fair in everything you do. Lord, you give me more credit than I deserve. You do more for me than I deserve. He said, just and true are thy ways. Here's the problem. If you're always, you're always through this mindset that you think other people are entitled or other people are more privileged, you know why you think the way? Because you have a wrong thought or conception about God. Then they said, not only how good thou art and how great thou art, but notice in verse 4, how glorious thou art. Who should not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. Man. That's all we're going to be singing in heaven. But I want you to notice something else. They're successful. 
They were victorious. Nikio. Over the beast. Over his image. Over his mark. Over his number. They're standing. They're standing on the word. They stood through the fire. They're singing. I want you to catch this tonight. This is why God put this here for John. Write this down. They're a standard. They're a standard. They're a standard of excellence of how to persevere to the end. They're a standard in terms of how to live for Jesus Christ no matter how bad it may be. Listen, when you get discouraged, you need a standard. Don't look at the lowest level of leadership. Look at the highest level of leadership. And I declare to you tonight, the highest level of leadership is look to the life and testimony of these men and women who live for Jesus Christ. They are the triumphant redeemed. A standard of courage. A standard of consecration. A standard of victory. A standard, of, a standard of steadfastness, a standard of always abounding in the work of the Lord. They are a standard before God. I've been an independent Baptist for most of my Christian life. Identify and agree with what we believe, our history. But I'm going to tell you, as I've seen heroes of our faith, I've seen the disappointments of our faith. And some of the same ones who were heroes that had a standard, when they fell, they brought people down with them. I want to declare to you, when I read these men and women, their names will not be in the sword of the Lord. Their names will not be in Christianity today. Their names will not be in the Christian news today, any of that kind of stuff out there, all these media publications. But their names are written in heaven just like yours and mine. And I want to tell you, even though we don't have their names, we have their standard that's recorded in Revelation 15. They are a standard for Christian living. Let's stop going looking for the lowest level of leadership and let's attain to biblical leadership and realize the standard is just like them. We can stand on God's word. We can stand through the fire. We can have victory over the devil. We have all that because we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. Finally, we're done. We see the tribulation wrath. We see the triumphant redeemed. Go to verse 8. We're done. We've seen those who made it. They got saved during the tribulation, amazingly. They make it to the second coming of Christ. They're the ones Jesus is speaking about in chapter 16, verse 15. They're watching and keeping their garments. But I want you to notice as we close, verse 8. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter to the temple, to the seven plagues, the seven angels were fulfilled. No man was able to enter. We see a tragic restriction. The angel who's preaching the everlasting gospel is God's final call right around the three and a half year mark. One last call. It's boarding time. The doors are about to close. It's like Noah and the ark. There came a time when God said, come down all thy house into the ark. And not too many verses after that, God shut the door. There's a sober reality for every lost individual during the tribulation time. If they do not respond to the everlasting gospel... What we see from the remainder of chapter 16 until Jesus comes, God's patience is worn out. The fullness of the wrath of God is poured out upon the earth. There's no more opportunity to get saved. And let me say this tonight. There are two sobering realities. Reality number one is where we live right now. God's word, the gospel, is being preached. You have an opportunity to be saved. You put it off. You keep putting it off. When Jesus comes for his people, we call that the rapture. 
you don't get saved before that, you're going to go to the tribulation period and you will not get saved. You will believe a deceitful spirit, a spirit of lies. You will not get saved because you didn't get saved now. You will, you will, be, you will be lost for eternity. And I want to tell you in reality, number one, now is the time to get saved. Now is an urgent time for you to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and to realize hell is a very real punishment that God will place every person who rejects his plan of salvation. They'll spend all of eternity there. Reality number two. Those who do not get saved before the pouring out of the seven bowl judgments. Once bowl number one is poured out, it's too late to get saved. The doors are closed. God's patience is worn out. Those who have received the mark of the beast, they're not going to get saved. They're going to gnaw their tongues. They're going to be scorched with the sun. They're going to have great and terrible sores, ulcers, external and probably internal ulcers eating away at their body. As we close tonight, I want you to go with me Second 2 Peter chapter 3. And I want you to understand God is long-suffering. God wants you to be saved tonight. God wants you to be saved right now. Second Peter, writing about the end times, in chapter 3, he said this in verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This week, why don't all of us Get an urgency to tell our loved ones and people we know God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then Peter said, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, unexpected, unannounced. You'll be unprepared, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. The elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned out. Now what's he doing there? He said, what, what's he talking about? What time frame is that? Well, he's talking about when the Lord Jesus Christ comes at his second coming. Following the second coming, there's the 1,000 year reign of Christ. Peter does not speak about the 1,000 year reign of Christ. But he talks about at, at the end of the 1,000 year reign of Christ, after the great white throne judgment, there will be the day of God. There will be God's judgment on the world. And he refers to this in which the, the, the firmament and the heavens will pass away. There will be a great cataclysmic noise. And the Bible says the elements shall melt with fervent What's God doing there? God's purging the entire world because it's been cursed with sin. It's not going to be part of glory land. He's going to burn it away and start all over again. He'll make a new heaven and a new earth. So God tells us, God Peter was telling the audience he's writing to about right now is the time to be saved. And he tells them many years later about the second coming of Christ and following that will be the day of God. Then he comes back in verse 11 and 12 and he tells us how we as God's people need to live. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking for, hasting, the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Now we're not going to we're not going to go through any judgment at the day of God. If you're saved right now, thank God for that. You're sa- your, ju- your sins were judged on the cross when Jesus died for your sins. But God is warning us in his word. We need to be sober and live in godliness and righteousness and holiness before God. He says, seeing then that what kind of persons we ought to be in all holy conversation and godliness. My plea to you tonight, if you're watching by live stream and you're not saved, don't put it off. Come to Christ tonight. Judgment is coming. 
This pandemic is not a joke. It's a small foretaste of a worldwide pandemic afflicting everything. It's going to be awful. If you don't get saved now, if you've heard the gospel tonight, you don't get saved during this time. And the rapture comes for God's people. You will believe a lie and not get saved. I urge you tonight, God loves you. I'm not using scare tactics. God loves you. God extends to you His merciful hand. He wants you to come to Him for the forgiveness of your sins, the washing away of your sins, and to receive the gift of eternal life. The Bible says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God wants you to be saved. Would you get saved tonight? Christian friend, would you not treat every message from Revelation tritely, but realize tonight the seven bold judgments are the fullness of the wrath of God? We need to sober up our lives and live for Christ. We need to stand on His Word. By standing on His Word, it gives us victory in our mouths. It gives us victory in our minds. And it gives us victory in our manners. Would you live for Christ? Would you stand for Him? Would you stand when you go through the fire? Would you stand for Christ? Take a stand from tonight. If you need to be saved tonight, we're going to show you how you can be saved tonight. You must call upon the Lord this evening to be your Savior. We're going to help you do that. Listen.